from the word of the Lord this morning. It's good to have everybody here and online. God bless you. It's good to have my wife here. She's She finally made it back to church. Thank you for praying for her. <laughs> and uh, that's been a, that was, man, that was, it was a close call. I said to her, I said, babe, I think, I think you're going to be uh, staying home again tonight. And uh, then Renee turned the corner and the fever left. So we were good to go. So finally get to be here. It's so good to have her here. Let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts this morning as we go into the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that in the name of Jesus, you would touch us, you would help us, you would change us and transform us by your word. In Jesus' name, as we read your word and as we seek to understand what you want to say to us this morning, Lord, I pray that you would anoint my lips to speak your words. In Jesus' name, let your will be done in this service and in, in, in your perfect will, let it be accomplished through this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse number 25. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse... Actually, I'll just do 26, if that's okay. Romans 28, 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. How many of you have an infirmity? The infirmity means weakness or lack of strength or even a disease. For we know not what we pray, should pray for as we ought. We don't know exactly what to say. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Thank you, Jesus. And I want to preach to you this morning about the Holy Ghost is our helper. The Holy Ghost is our helper. You can be seated. High five next someone close to you and just say, God bless you. Amen. It is so good to be in God's presence. And Life is full of all kinds of situations that uh, put us in unique positions. And so this verse is a very comforting one. And, and uh, as I'm studying and preparing, I'm, I'm reminded that um, I'm reminded of when my wife and I first got married. And uh, I had been living here in Ajax since 2008, and we got married in 2011. And so I had already, you know, I had, I had my bachelor pad. I already had the house that we're living in currently. And it was, a very, it was a very manly bachelor pad. It was just, you know, typical, uh, a typical man's house. Uh, no female touch whatsoever. Um, random pictures on the wall. Nothing matching, no no coordination really, and uh, and I had acquired enough stuff in the few years that I had lived there prior to getting married, and my wife was you know she was living in her own apartment, so she had her own collection of things, and we soon discovered that we had two of everything. I mean, two of every single thing you could possibly imagine. And so we began to merge our lives together, and that was fun. 
And we, we discovered how much stuff we had, even though we weren't really that old. We, weren't, we didn't have that much life, but we had somehow acquired enough stuff to be doubled up on everything from, from kitchen utensils to spoons to mixing bowls to uh, everything. Pian- we had two pianos, right? We had this one and the one that we have in our house. And so this one came to live here and uh, permanently. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we literally had two of everything. And so we began to, to declutter. And my wife discovered this wonderful little app called Kijiji. And it became a little scary how excited she would get over a Kijiji sale. And I was starting to get worried that she wasn't going to stop when we had one of everything, but she was going to keep going. And if it wasn't nailed to the floor, it was on Kijiji. And I, I had to start taking inventory of the things I really didn't want to leave because I was afraid I was going to come home from work and there it was gone. Someone, she sold it for 20 bucks. Um, and it was, it was very exciting for her. And I discovered quickly how much she likes to declutter and throw things out throw things out. And to the point now where I'm careful when she says, do you want to throw this out? I said, I don't, I don't think, I think so, but I don't, I don't know. I need to sleep on it. I need to sleep on it. And so, uh, so it, it just had two of everything. And it, it we, we eventually pared it down and, and uh, but this limited to newlyweds it's actually a, a situation you discover that you have when you become a Christian. When you begin to follow Jesus, all of a sudden, you now have two of everything in your walk with Jesus. And what I mean by that is, is before, when you were just living for yourself and living in your own world, and Paul says living after the course of this world, and what you didn't realize is you were actually serving a a different master, you weren't serving Jesus, and you may not have been, you know, a Satanist per se, no doubt, but, but the Bible basically makes the, the case that if you're not living for God, you're living in Satan's kingdom. Now, you may not be living to fulfill his grand schemes for the world, but if you're living for yourself, you're still living under his domain, under his control, under his operation. And so Paul makes the case that when you come into the faith, you become a Christian. Uh, He says it like this in Galatians 5, 16. He says, so let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Paul alludes to the idea that, that before you came into faith in Jesus Christ, you just did whatever your flesh, your your, your natural human instinct, your desires were. And you may have curtailed it. You may have governed it, much like a lot of people in the world today do. You know, you don't, I, I'm not here to say that everybody who's not saved or everyone who's not a Christian is, is, you know, just a raging buffoon that goes out and says whatever comes to their mind. Some people are. Um, and I think they call them Karens and Kevins, you know. Um, that's the, the trend today. But most people out there have some kind of self-governance. And, and uh, it's kind of sad to see that there are nicer people in the world than there are in the church at times. That's, that, that is, that's a fact because, you know, as humans, we have the capacity to govern ourselves to a, an extent. But Paul says, uh, 
essentially, even if you have some kind of internal compass that governs your your actions, your reactions, and your choices, there is still a a, a controlling mechanism underneath all of that that is your sinful desires, sinful nature. And so Paul says, now that you're a, a believer in Christ, you should let the Holy Spirit guide your lives rather than your heart. The worst piece of advice you could give someone or even believe is to follow your heart. It's, it's a very popular, and it's a warm, fuzzy, I mean, the commercials put it out there with all the warm colors and the happy pictures and the, the, the ideas of success, and, uh, but the Bible makes it very clear that the heart is not something to be trusted. Your natural instincts are, are not exactly the thing that should be counted on or that you should build your life on. That, that the Holy Spirit is the one that you really ought to follow and let direct your guide. So, so now that you're a believer, before you didn't have this problem, before you just did what you wanted to do, you did what your heart said to do, you did what your, your, your instinct told you to do, you followed the course of your own design in your own ways, and maybe it was guided by, by a grandmother or a grandfather or a father or a mother, you know, the, the wisdom that came into your life, but ultimately it was up to you, it was on you, what were you going to do? And it was just you, yourself, and you. To decide. But now, as a believer, there's two. There's two voices. Your flesh didn't stop talking when you got baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost. Your, your flesh didn't, I mean, yes, we buried our old nature. Yes, we put it under the blood. And yes, we rise to walk in newness of life. And often, people who have a conversion experience often go through major transformation in a short period of time where, where things change in their life dramatically. But ultimately, they settle down to the reality that there are now two voices. There's two of everything. Do you know before you were a Christian, you only had one birthday to worry about? And, and I say worry about because I'm actually getting to that age where you worry about your birthday. Not worry about if someone's going to remember. You just worry that it's coming because it means you're getting that much older. I got orthotics for my birthday this year. So, like, you know, that's, that's a sign. Man, that's something else. I, I worry. I don't know what I'm getting for my next birthday, but I'm not, I'm not too excited about it. It's... <laughs> Uh, but but before I was saved, I, I only had to worry about one birthday. Now I have two birthdays, right? Because the Bible says in John 3, 6 that that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There's a, a fleshly birthday. But then you have a birth of the Spirit. When you are born again of the water and of the Spirit, that, that's, a, that's another birthday. You have two births. I was born into this world with a fleshly mindset, a sinful disposition, But now that I'm in Christ, I now have another birth, a new birth, which I'm thankful for. It's a good thing. But I also have two natures because with the natural birth comes the natural way of doing it. But with the spiritual birth comes now the spiritual way of thinking about it, right? I I, I can look at a, 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 you know, have you ever had one of those bad days in your home where everybody's fighting with everybody? I'm tempted to just look at that naturally and go, well, this is just, you know, everyone's just having a bad day. And that might be someone got off on the wrong side of the bed. But I I also acknowledge, you know, there might be a spiritual component to this, too. 
I think, and I said to my kids, we were having a, one of those days, and I finally stopped them. I said, you know what? The devil wants us to be fighting with each other all the time. Now, I don't know if the devil's here making me do it or making me fight, but I can tell that he's He's okay if we keep it up and we keep tearing each other down and put why don't we put a stop to it and do what Jesus wants us to do? See, there's two ways of looking at I can just look at it at everyone you know, it's that 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 lovely daylight savings time where they they say you gain an hour, but they whoever made up that rule didn't have children because kids don't follow that rule of giving you the extra hour. I don't know. My kids were up at 4:30 this morning. Uh, they didn't give us the extra hour. Bless God. But, uh, so, you know, I could look at it that way. I could just see, you know what? There's also spiritual components to this life that we have. There's two things going on, two situations taking place. And, and, and now that there's two ways of looking at it, I also realize that there's two men within me that are warring for position. There's the old man, the Bible says, the carnal, sinful, fleshly man. <laughs> That's born with these tendencies. And then there's the new man that Paul talks about in the book of Romans. He, he, he says it's the inward man. And this man, he needs a renewing. He, he doesn't stay there all the time. He must be renewed all the time. Uh, fresh batteries have got to be put in the new man for the new man to be there and strong and powerful. There's two walks. I can walk according to the flesh. I can walk and make choices based on my natural design. Or I can walk in the spirit, which has better benefits. And walking after the flesh means doing whatever my flesh wants. But walking in the spirit means I stop and pause and pray and seek God and read his word and learn what does the spirit want me to do. Well, The spirit wants me to have love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, long-suffering, faithfulness. These are the things that if I, if I let these things govern my life, then, then I'm walking in the Spirit. And if I'm walking in the Spirit, the Bible promises I will not fulfill what my flesh wants me to do because I can't. If my flesh is wanting to be first, but I follow my Spirit and say just be patient, be long-suffering, put others ahead of yourself, then, then I, if I follow what my spirit is saying, my flesh will not get what it wants. Do you see? There's two roads. There's two men. There's two natures. The Bible even says that there's two laws at work. There's the law of sin. And when the Bible says law, in this case, it's not talking about a decree or a command. It's talking about a principle. There's the principle of sin. If I follow the principle of sin... The, the result will be death. The result will be, and, and sin by definition is missing the mark. If I do what God wants, then I'm hitting the mark. But if I miss the mark of God's commands, then I'm, I'm committing sin. And it has its consequences. It has, there's a principle. There's an equation. Eventually it leads to death. It, le it leads to separation. It leads to destruction. It leads to uh, pulling things apart. But the law of the Spirit is living in Jesus Christ. It's living after the ways of Christ. I can live under the principles of sin or I can live under the principles of Christ and His life. And, and I have the choice. The Bible also says I have two minds. <laughs> See what I mean? Two of everything. I mean, 
We have two minds. We have the mind of the flesh, which the Bible says is God's enemy. It fights against the ways of God. The natural way of thinking, just my natural reaction, my natural response, that's the carnal mind. But then there's the spiritual mind. The Bible says when I have a spiritual mind, it brings life and peace. When I walk after the bidding of the Spirit of God, when I lean on the Word for definition, for direction, for inspiration, for commandment, then I, I live under the guidance of the Spirit. And so after all this talk about two of everything, it can kind of feel like a, an overwhelming newlyweds house with two of everything plus all your wedding gifts. You've got to sort through it all and pick what you're going to keep. And actually, that's what it comes down to for you and I. Every day we've got to pick which one we're going to keep. But unlike newlyweds, we can't put the old man on Kijiji and try to sell him off for a profit. Praise God. I mean, I wish we could. I wish we could. I don't know who would buy him, but, but I, sometimes I wish I could put him for sale. But I, I've got to contend with the two. Before, I, and, and people notice this when they become a Christian, everything gets harder, Pastor. Well, yes, because now there's two of everything. And it can be wearying. It can, it can wear you down. It can, it can burden you and, and bring you down and wear you out. And, and, and this, this weight of, of carrying two becomes difficult. It becomes a balancing act. And you don't, you don't hit it out of the park every single day. You don't, you don't respond perfectly every time. Sometimes you respond with the, with the mind of the flesh, and sometimes you respond with the, the mind of the spirit, and it's a, sometimes a balancing act. The Bible also calls it a war. You're in a spiritual war because you've got the devil, and you've got your flesh weighing you down on this side, and you've got the spirit of God and the word of God and the angels weighing you down on the other, and it's this balance. Balancing act of which one am I going to lean towards today? How do I deal with this two of everything problem? How do I deal with it? Well, I, the Bible makes it, I mean, pretty clear. There's a few things you need to do. One of them is, is put to death the works of the flesh. And then the... That, that sounds kind of odd. Well, how do I, what does that mean? Put to death means simply to separate yourself from. Think of death in the biblical sense. Death from an, uh, uh, an earthly sense is very permanent and final. It's over. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. You're permanently separated, never coming back again. Death from a biblical perspective is a temporary separation. Because... When you're, when you're dead in your body, you're present with the Lord. That's what the Bible says. So it's, the story's not over just because you breathed your last. Death is not final in God's economy. It's a separation for a time. And so when you put to death your flesh, you're separating the works of the flesh from what you choose to do. Romans chapter 8 
Verse 11 says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal body by the same Spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. You're not obligated to do what you want to do. Some, and it's very easy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't just say some as though it's this distant, off-removed person. I've struggled with this. When my flesh suggests something, I respond immediately with ready obedience as if I have to do what my flesh is saying it wants to do. I have to follow through with this particular temptation. As a young person, I struggled like most young men do with, with different temptations and common temptations of, of pornography and lust and things of that nature. And, and I, I, I would pray and, you know, try to get help and all this kind of stuff. And I, a, a turning point in my mind, it didn't necessarily perfect me or make me perfect, but a turning point in my mind and what gave me a better handle on dealing with this kind of thing was this verse here in Romans 8.12. You have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. And the Lord began to show me that just because I feel something or desire something, that doesn't mean I have to do it. That doesn't make me who I am. That's not what the world tells you today. The world says if you feel something, it must be, it must be intrinsically part of your identity. If you desire something, then it must mean that, that this is your identity and you must identify by this particular desire. You must say, well, well, if this is what I feel, then that must be who I am. But the Bible tells you that you have no obligation to go along with what your sinful nature says it desires. You can look your sinful nature. This is, this is what the redemption has done. What, what the blood of Jesus Christ has done, it's drawn a line in the sand and says you don't have to live according to the desires of your sinful nature. You can have desires all day long that aren't good for you. You can have desires and, and passions all day long that are not, that are not good for you. And it doesn't mean you have to identify as that particular desire, as that particular thing. You can stand up to yourself and say, no, I am who he says I am. I am what God has created me to be. I have no obligation to do what my sinful nature urges me to do. I mean, you can apply that to anything. You get angry enough, well, I just got to tell him off. I got to tell him the way it is. No, you don't have to tell him how the way it is. Often in the moment, you're, you're just telling him what you think, not really how it is. Right? Because you give yourself a little space, and you separate yourself from that thing, and your emotions calm down. You know, neuroscience tells us that when you get angry, this frontal cortex of your brain turns off, shuts down. You, the thing that, that deals with logic and what makes sense is completely shut off. It doesn't feel like that, though. When you're angry, you think you know exactly how it is. And I know what you're thinking, too. I all of a sudden develop mind-reading capabilities when I get angry. When I'm calm and rational, I think it's ridiculous to think that I could read your mind. But if I'm angry, 
I, man, I most certainly know it's printed right on your forehead what you're thinking. God, give me this special, magical superpower. I can now look in your eyes and read your thoughts. And I know what you think of me. And let me tell you what I think of you. Right? I don't have to respond to that urge to unload my brain. I don't have to respond to that. I don't have to give in to the urges of my sinful nature. I don't have to give in to a desire that comes uh, 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 at whatever point in my life. I don't have to even identify, but that's who I am. I'm an angry person. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a judgmental person. I may have a judgmental thought against somebody, but I don't have to, I don't have to own that as my identity. I might, I might just say, oh, you know what? I had a really judgmental thought. Lord, help me with that. Help me, help me to put that in perspective. That doesn't make me a judgmental person. I may have a bad thought. That doesn't make me a bad person. I'm not receiving that identity. I'm not receiving that, that label on my life. Bible says I have no obligation. So how do I deal with this tussle of two? I deal with it by first knowing that there is a line in the sand. I get to choose. I can look my desire in the eye and say, I don't have to follow that. I can look, even if it's something that, that is something that attracts me. I feel attracted by this particular thing, whatever it is. I'm under no obligation, the Bible says, to follow that desire or attraction. Have you ever realized that sometimes your attractions change from day to day? Right? One day you could really be in the mood for jerk chicken. And the next day you want a big plate of lasagna. Right? Attractions change. Desires change. They're not set. Your brain is a very fluid thing. It's soft. Your brain is soft. It's not hardwired into your DNA to be anything in particular other than what God has already created you to be. Your brain is soft-wired. You can change the way you think in any, any time frame between 30 and 90 days. Neuroscience teaches you that. If you have a, a, a lifestyle up and for, for, you know, for 40 years of depressive thinking, you can change that within 90 days. Neuroscience tells us that. And there's all kinds of resources out there, behavioral cognitive therapy, behavioral cognitive therapy that will help you make those changes. And it will take a significant amount of work, but it can be done. You're under no obligation. But that, that doesn't mean it's easy. The struggle is lifelong. And it's uphill. And there's often multiple voices telling you to go in a different direction. So how do I anchor myself on what is true? The Bible says I must hide the word of God in my heart so that I will not sin against him. If I hide his word, if I walk after the spirit, I will not fulfill the desires of my flesh. Romans 8.23 says, and we believers also groan. We groan. Brother, um, Brother Garfield, Brother uh, Adam, if you could help me. There's a table in here I need. If you guys could help bring it out for me. I want to illustrate something for everyone here this morning. Uh, Romans 8.23 says, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit. Paul says, as believers, we 
we groan. We are weighted down. There is a groaning in our spirit that makes it difficult at times to press forward and do what God has called us to do. We groan, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Because there's, there, the, the problem is there is a desire to do the wrong thing. There is a desire to do uh, the sinful thing or the sinful nature. Thank you. You can just set it right there in the middle. And, and, and there, is a, there is a desire to do the right thing. There is a pull in both directions. And it can be very tiring. Because not only do we have to contend with sin, but Paul says we groan because we also have suffering. Right? Sickness. Death. The Bible used the word infirmity. And infirmity can mean mental, emotional, physical strain. We, we have difficult situations, sufferings of life, that by the way, most sufferings that we experience in life are a, a direct or an indirect result of the sin problem in the world. The suffering of your, of your job and the amount of time you have to spend at work is, is somewhat connected to the, the curse of sin that has been brought into this world. For God said to Adam, from the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to draw bread from the ground. It's going to be a natural consequence of the desire to do your own thing and be your own God and make your own choices and define your own good and evil. That's going to be a natural byproduct. There's going to be a natural tension within a marriage relationship between husband and wife. That is a suffering that we have to go through and we have to figure out how to navigate that suffering. Then there's sickness. Sickness is by far a direct consequence of sin. It is a consequence because Bible teaches us that when man was created in the garden, he was perfect. He was without sickness. There was no decay in his body. There was no, there was no illness, no ailment. But eventually death began to take over and the trajectory of man has been going down ever since the Garden of Eden until now we're dealing with every kind of sickness under the sun, any kind of disease under the sun, diseases apparently that can shut the world down for two years straight. And, and, and this is the kind of thing we're dealing with more than just mistakes. We're dealing with sin. We're dealing with sin. You open the CTV news and you ain't going to find a lot of positive news items on that, that thing. You're going to find that even within Ajax and Pickering, there's stabbings. There's children being trafficked for drugs and alcohol. You'll find not that uh, within walking distance from my home, there were mass murders a few years ago of a whole family that was just slaughtered within their house. I mean, this is not, we're not talking about foreign countries. We're talking about right here. Sin and suffering are prevalent and alive here in this area, in our homes, in our lives. And all of us have been indirectly or directly affected by the suffering of life. It's wearying. If it's not enough to have this constant battle between right and wrong and the, the sinful nature and the spiritual nature, we also have to contend with the groaning of suffering that Paul says we believers, we groan. We are weighted down. We long for our bodies to be released. We long for the fullness of salvation to come where God completely redeems us and gets rid of our sinful nature once and for all and we're completely recreated to be in his presence and to live free from sin and free 
from sickness and suffering the way we were intended to be. We wait with eager hope, he says, for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children. I don't have my full rights as God's adopted child, but one of these days I'm going to receive it. And until then, Paul says, I'm groaning under the weight of what I have to carry. But God does not leave us there in a worn down, battered state. It's not his design for us to remain under that kind of weight. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 4 says a person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally. On Wednesday we covered the, the teaching about diverse kinds of tongues, a gift of the Spirit. That if you have received the gift of the Holy Ghost with the initial evidence of speaking in other tongues, it's very easy for you to also operate in the gift of diverse kinds of tongues. By the way, they're not the same. And not to rehash what I taught on Wednesday, but the gift of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues is not the same as the gift of diverse kinds of tongues that Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians 12. They're, they're different. It's kind of the upgraded version. You know, the, the, the gift of the Holy Ghost is the, your entry-level gift, and then the gift of diverse kinds of tongues is the upgraded version. And it's very easy for you to slip into the second one because Paul said it's the strengthen, the personal strengthening. It's the gift that God gives you that keeps on giving. It personally strengthens your spirit when you speak in other tongues. When you make a practice of praying through every day and you pray in tongues every day, if, if possible, you get into prayer and into a place where it's very easy to just begin to worship the Lord and all of a sudden begin to speak in other tongues. It doesn't have to be loud. It doesn't have to be boring. It can just be very silent and under your breath and speak in tongues. And Paul says you're building up your spiritual man. There's a edifying. The word edify means to build like bricks stacked on top of one another. And the more you do it, the more you strengthen that spiritual man. It's like plugging the spiritual man into the batteries. It's like putting fresh fresh electricity through those batteries and reviving them and bringing them back to full strength. And it's through the power of the Spirit that we can work and put to death the deeds of our sinful nature. And so this is what I wanted to preach on here. And I'm going to close with this last piece, this last verse in Romans 8, 26. I want you to see this. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. In, Paul, in, in Romans 8, Paul is talking about this dichotomy, this, this two things happening at the same time, this flesh and spirit. And the weariness, the burden, he says, nature is even groaning under the pressure of sin. Earthquakes and hurricanes and all kinds of things happening. Nature is groaning under the weight of of what is going to be revealed, because even nature has been affected by sin. Nature has been affected by sin. And and so Paul says, the Spirit helpeth our infirmity, our weakness, our lack of strength, and our disease. Now, before you start interpreting what infirmity is, you see the colon there? The colon tells you that what Paul is about to say is going to define what he just said. Okay? So he said, the Spirit helps our infirmities. What is our infirmity? What is the thing that we are weak in, we have lack of strength in, and we are actually diseased in? What is this infirmity? It's prayer. Prayer is your infirmity. 
because we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. I don't know exactly what to pray for. I come up, up against a temptation. I, I, I mean, sometimes I know, and sometimes I don't even need to pray. I just need to do, right? There's that. But then I come up against a, 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 an actual infirmity, a sickness, a weakness, a trouble, a, a circumstance between two people, and, and it becomes clouded. It's not clear-cut. It's not black and white. It's very gray. There's lots of grays. There's hues of white. And I don't know which way is the right way, which way is the godly way, which way is the flesh way, and, 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 and what is God going to do about this financial problem? What is God going to do about this decision at school when the teacher calls me and says, this is what we're going to do with our class. I'm not sure. Should I? Yes. Should I know? What there's, there's a gray area. What do I do? I don't know exactly what to pray for as I ought. When someone comes up to me and says, I just got a diagnosis. Do I pray for their healing or is this part of God's plan for their life? Do they need to go through this? I don't know. I'm not God. I, know, I don't know exactly what I need to pray for as I ought. We often face things in our life. We don't know what the right thing is. We don't know what to ask for the way we want. We know what we want, but we don't necessarily know if that's what God wants. We have an infirmity. We have a weakness. We have a lack of strength. And we actually have a disease called sin that affects our ability to know what the will of God is. So the Spirit helps our infirmities. I want to overcome this. I want to see it through. I want the healing. I want the deliverance. I want the situation to be resolved. But I don't know what to pray for exactly that fits God's perfect will for my life. But, but pastor, it's God's will for you to be healed. It's God's will for you to be delivered. Really? Tell that to James who was beheaded for his faith. Tell that to Peter who was crucified upside down for his faith. Don't tell me that God always wants someone to be miraculously delivered. Tell that to the many Christians across the world who are facing persecution for just saying, I follow Jesus. Don't tell me that God always delivers miraculously. Sometimes people suffer. Sometimes the diagnosis ends with death. Sometimes it doesn't end with a healing. Sometimes it doesn't end with the victory that we see. But if we look beyond what we see God will eventually reveal all things, and everything will eventually make sense. But for the time, what do I pray for? Do I pray for healing? Does God want them delivered? Does God want them freed? Is this the result of their... What is it? What I, I have an infirmity. It's prayer. So the Spirit helps me. And then, the, then Paul says, this is what the Spirit does. This is the medication the Spirit prescribes. This is the solution the Spirit gives. He maketh intercession... The word intercession is a, a word that talks about a deep place of prayer. A place of prayer that, that goes and stands in between two situations with the solution. It's the bridge that crosses across a chasm. It's, it's the road that takes you from point A to point B. It's the middle it's that middle section. It's the intercessor who stands between two and holds and makes a bridge. It's the spirit that makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There's, there's a revelation here in this. Paul is talking about two kinds of things here. First of all, we believe that Paul is actually speaking of speaking in other tongues. 
because although you see the word groanings which cannot be uttered, there's other translations that read with sounds that cannot be understood. God makes, the Spirit makes intercession with you with sounds, with noises, with words that cannot be expressed in words, that cannot be understood. But it also speaks, the word groanings there is also used in the Psalms when it says, let the sighing of the prisoners come before you. God, let, let, let just the, oh, of your saints Speak a volume to you. Let that, oh, of the groan, of the weight, of what I'm carrying, let it speak something to you, Lord, and let it make an intercession. See, there's two kinds of prayer. There's the prayer in tongues, but sometimes maybe you've even gotten there where something weighed so heavily on your heart, all you could do was cry. All you could do was pray, and and sometimes words didn't even come out, but there was just an, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Lord, there was a groaning and there was an, a, 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 a sound that come out that, that even squeezed, you know, that, that squeezing of your stomach when you're in, and it doesn't happen often. You don't pray like this every day, but there's an occasion when you're praying for something that, that is heavy and weighted and you literally feel the weight of that prayer. The Bible says that's the Spirit helping you, praying for you. God steps in and takes over the language centers of your brain science has uh, the scientists there uh, many years ago they were fascinated with this this new thing called speaking in tongues and they would hook people up to brain monitors and 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 ask them to pray in tongues and and they they begin to notice that there was a common trend with every person who spoke in tongues the language center of the brain turned off they weren't they weren't using their brain to formulate words but there was they were still speaking intelligible languages that that had cadence and rhythm and and occasionally they could recognize a foreign language in the mix of that uh, and, and it's it's very fascinating but but it, it lines up with what scripture saying that that it's not your brain making the the words or your brain fashioning the words that are coming out of your mouth but it's the spirit that's making those words coming out of there's a miracle taking place when you speak in tongues the spirit is praying on your behalf now why do I have this table here. Charles, will you help me with this? The Bible says the Spirit helpeth our infirmity. How does he, what does that mean he helps? Now, if Charles tries to lift this table, let's pretend this is like a thousand pounds, okay? So just, he's trying to lift this situation, and he probably could nudge it or move it to a certain degree, but the Bible literally means the word helpeth. There's a, a, a Greek word picture that's actually being used. It's two people getting on either side and lifting. And so, in other words, Paul says, without the Spirit, you could, you could lift it to an extent. You could move it to an extent. But it's so much better if someone lifts it with you. I love this because there used to be an old expression, well, you just pray about it. You know, someone comes in for counseling, and the pastor really didn't know what to say because they weren't trained enough to give good advice. So they divert, devolved to, well, brother, just pray about it. Just pray about it. The Lord hears. And that's good advice. But prayer alone, if all you do is pray, it's not going to, it's not going to really do it. There's, there's something you've got to do. See, the praying about it is the Lord's end, right? Because we, we read here, it's not actually you praying, but it's the Spirit praying through you with groanings, with sounds. But there's something you've got to do to pick up your end of the table. 
Or you can pray for deliverance from depression and God will do his end, but you've also got to do your end. Get into some behavior cognitive therapy. Go into a, a, a doctor and, and work with them on your, your thought patterns and talking back to your mind. You've got to lift your end of the table. Prayer is, prayer is not you lifting your end of the table because it's not you praying. You praying is just submitting to God and letting him lift. But you've got to lift your end of the table and do your part. You can't just pray that God takes away the temptation for pornography or for lust. You've got to lift your end of the table and get accountable. You've got to install software on your computer and your phone that monitors what you're doing and, and sends a report to somebody to help you stay accountable so that that, that that temptation does not overtake you in a moment of weakness. Yes, you pray about it. God will do his part. But you've got to lift your part of the table. He helpeth your infirmity, but he doesn't take the infirmity away. He just lifts his end of the table. Now, now Charles could lift his end of the table. You could do all the behavior cognitive therapy you want. You could do your end of the bargain. You could do all your parts, but without the spirit, the infirmity is still there. You don't know exactly what to pray for as you ought. You need the spirit to help lift, and together, you and Jesus, that's why Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and get, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Yoke up with me. You do your part. I'll do my part. You do your work, I'll do my work. You do what you can do, thank you Charles, I'll do what I can do. You do your part of the equation and I'll do my part of the equation. And when we work together with the Holy Ghost, then the, the answer can be received. What did Paul say the very next verse? Verse 28. He gives the disclaimer. Are you ready for it? And we know that all things work together. For good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. In other words, just because you prayed about it doesn't mean you're going to get the answer you thought you wanted because you've got to eventually come to the point where you, you surrender and say, God, I'm going to pray in the spirit and I'm trusting you're going to pray exactly what needs to happen in this circumstance. But in all things, I know you are going to work it together for good. If the sickness takes my life, you're going to work it together for good. If the person doesn't get delivered from the circumstance, from the situation, because I've prayed about it, I'm praying that you're going to work it out for good. Pastor, does that mean we should stop praying about it? Never. You should continually pray. Jesus said you should be like the widow who didn't stop knocking on the door of the unjust judge and got until she got what she prayed for. You keep praying and you keep pressing. You keep letting the Spirit pray through you with words that cannot be understood, with sounds and groanings, and let the Spirit pray on your behalf, but then let, leave it in the hands of God. Because you come down to the end of chapter 8, and I'm going to close with this if you want to stand with me this morning. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Is it going to be tribulation? Is it going to be distress or persecution? Is it going to be famine or sword or perils or danger? Is it going to be any spiritual force? No. In all these things, Paul said, we're more than conquerors. God's never going to separate you from his love. That's why you need the Spirit to give you strength. You need to connect with the Spirit to give you the power you need to, to get through and to trust him. Hallelujah. I don't know what you came here this, with this morning, 
But I, I wouldn't be remiss to say that there's somebody here today that needs strength from the Holy Ghost this morning. Somebody here needs encouragement in their spirit to keep going, keep fighting. Don't give up. Don't, don't throw in the towel today just because it's hard and it's difficult. And yes, all those things are true, but God is going to do a work in you if you pray, if you'll leave it in his hands this morning. Would you maybe come around this altar or find a place of prayer in your seat and just give it to the Lord. Give, 